Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figililingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South African President Jacob Zuma warns rebel groups in Eastern DRC and two Kenyan soldiers arrested for stealing during Westgate Mall terror attack. In economics, DRC and South Africa strengthen trade ties. And in sports news, South African rugby union boss needs six rugby super rugby franchises. But first, the news Africa and Top Comedia brings you the 10th anniversary of the Top Women Awards. As part of Women's Month celebrations, these awards recognize organizations that empower women in business and government across the African continent. Channel Africa as a broadcast partner is sponsoring the African SMME Award to the Best Performing Enterprise. The award ceremony is taking place on the 2nd of August 2013 at the Sentinel Convention Center in Johannesburg, South Africa. Stay tuned as we will be speaking to some of the successful women entrants. For more information, visit the Channel Africa website on www.channelafrica.org. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning. Two Kenyan soldiers have been arrested and a third is being investigated for looting during the deadly four-day siege of a Nairobi shopping mall by Islamist militants last month. At least 67 people were killed when Somali al-Shabaab militants raided the upmarket Westgate Mall. The arrest comes shortly after police summoned two journalists to write statements on a video footage showing soldiers carrying plastic bags of looted property. Kenya's Inspector General of Police David Kimayio explains the extent to which Kenya's journalists can go as far as their work is concerned. The Constitution of Kenya gives very clearly the limitation that freedom of expression, freedom of media, that there is a limit that you need not to provocate propaganda war. You need not to incite Kenyans. You need not to distribute or maybe issue statements that can amount to HP. The Democratic Republic of Congo says it's still open for talks with M23 rebels, but they are still continuing to insist on amnesty and integration into the government army. Peace talks broke down last week in Kampala, Uganda, over the two contentious issues. 
The government and the United Nations mission say after fierce fighting, the rebels have been confined to a small area near the Rwandan border. South African President Jacob Zuma, who's visiting the DRC, has also told the rebels that enough is enough. DRC Defence Minister Alexandra Lubahintambo says they want a peaceful end to the war. What we said in Kampala is we will not amnesty those who have already been amnested. That was first. And about integration, we will not integrate not Congolese people. We will not integrate groups of persons. We will integrate individuals, case by case. That's what we said in Kampala, nothing else. The United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says Nigerians who are fleeing escalating violence and conflict in the northeast of the country should not be forcibly returned home. Conflict between the Nigerian army and insurgents in the northeastern states of Adamawa, Bono and Yobe has displaced up to 10,000 Nigerians, the majority of whom have fled into neighboring Cameroon, Chad and Niger. UNHCR is urging neighboring countries to keep their borders open for fleeing Nigerians, adding that the majority of the displaced may need international protection and humanitarian assistance. Dan McNaughton is UNHCR spokesperson in Geneva. Violence is estimated to have displaced an estimated 5,000 people within the region, but as humanitarian access has been hampered by the attacks, UNHCR believes the actual number of people affected could be significantly higher. UNHCR has also been alarmed at reports of the attempted forced return of 111 people from Cameroon to Nigeria on the 5th of October. They were expelled from a village in the far north region of Cameroon to Adawama State in Nigeria. During this incident, 15 people were killed and another seven wounded. The remaining 89 individuals immediately fled back to Cameroon and were detained. The the judges presiding over the trial of nearly three dozen members of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood have stepped down. This after security agencies refused to let the defendants attend the courtroom sessions yesterday. In a separate development, a Brotherhood-led Islamist coalition says ousted President Mohamed Morsi refuses to appoint a lawyer to represent him in his trial, which is due to start next Monday, because it does not recognize the tribunal or the political system in place since his ouster. And finally, four French hostages kidnapped in Niger by Al-Qaeda's North African wing three years ago have been released. The hostages were released following talks with officials from the West African country. However, there is no news about the fate of three other men, a Swede, Dutch and a South African, who were also held by AQUIM. Two other French nationals are also still being held after being taken by armed groups in Mali. And that the news at 8.30 Central African Times headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's exactly 8.07 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa Radio, streaming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Congolese government says it is now firmly in control of the areas previously held by the M23 rebels in the volatile eastern part of the country. This follows intense fighting in the east of the country after peace talks failed over amnesty and integration of the rebels into the government army. This 
comes as President Jacob Zuma gave a stern warning to the rebels to give up arms, saying enough is enough. Zuma was addressing the joint sitting parliament during his visit, during his state visit to the DRC. Matlati Gallens has more. The past few days saw violence flare up once again in North Kivu province in eastern DRC. Tens of thousands again uprooted from their homes as they fled the heavy fighting between M23 rebels and government forces backed by UN peacekeepers. A Tanzanian peacekeeper was killed. The United Nations says the rebels have now been pushed to a small area near the Rwandan border. Alexandra Lubantambo is the Congolese defense minister. Uh, our troops are controlling all the main towns uh, which were controlled by M23. We are doing our best, but our intention is to, uh, to come to an end with this war peacefully. But we are there to, uh, to prevent them from coming back again. The heavy fighting followed a breakdown of talks in the Ugandan capital, Kampala. The rebels and government could not agree on amnesty and the reintegration of rebels into the government army. M23 was formed last year when they mutinied, accusing the Congolese government of not honoring the March 23, 2009 peace deal that saw them lay down arms. Ndambo says they are still open for talks, but conditions remain. What we said in Kampala is... Uh, we will not amnesty those who uh, have already been amnested. That's our first. And about integration, we will not integrate uh, not Congolese people. We will not integrate groups of persons. We will integrate individuals, case by case. In his address to the Joint Sitting of Parliament, President Jacob Zuma commended the Congolese army on its efforts to bring about peace in the East. Zuma called for an end of the vicious cycle of violence and misery. He did not mention any rebels by name, but strongly condemned them and external forces supporting them. Rwanda has repeatedly been accused of supporting rebels operating in the East. Enough is enough. Trop, c'est trop. The time for peace is now. C'est maintenant le temps de la paix. And to those Et à ceux who challenge this qui défieraient pour leurs propres intérêts égoïstes, nous restons fermes dans le message que time votre temps up. est maintenant. Lay de down your Déposez vos armes. President Zuma will today be in Lubumbashi. Congo's second biggest city, where he will visit some mining projects in the area. Mashadze Gallens, Kinshasa, DRC. The United Nations Special Envoy in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Martin Kobler, has told the UN Security Council that the M23 rebel movement is all but finished as a military threat. This as authorities reportedly found mass graves as fighting continues between government troops and M23 rebels. A special commission has been set up to identify the graves. More on the security situation with human, from human rights researcher in Goma, Aida Soya. But in the past few days, the Congolese army has taken over a significant amount of territory that was controlled by the M23 rebels. And the government now controls all along the road from Goma north to Kiwanja, 
including the territorial capital of Uturu and the main military base in eastern Congo, Lumengago. Uh, the M23 have fled to the hills bordering Rwanda, which is where they were for the first several months of the rebellion a year and a half ago. And they're also in Lumengago, which is a key border town bordering Uganda. Um, and it seems, you know, this is a very quick defeat of the M23, and it seems that the rebels have not gotten the support from Rwanda that they've gotten in past military offensives. So we'll, we'll see what happens next. It's, it's not over, but this is definitely a significant development. Um, and we'll see in the coming days whether the army pushes forward and tries to take Bunagana and defeat the M23 in the hills. Also possible they might go back to the peace talks in Kampala. So what does the defeat of the M23 mean then for peace and stability, particularly in the eastern Congo? Well, there's still, there's still a lot to do. I think one of the, the key challenges now will be quickly restoring state authority in the areas that the government has just taken over from the M23. So ensuring that the army and the police and administrative authorities are quickly deployed um, and that the other armed groups operating around this territory, including a number of neoturic groups, don't come in and try to attack civilians in this zone and that there's not a security vacuum. Um, We're also concerned that there might be cases of reprisals or settling of scores against suspected M23 collaborators. So it's it's crucial that there is restraint on all sides from that. Um, And then there's also huge challenges in other parts of the Chur territory in the north and neighboring the Sisi and Walikali territories. And in these areas, dozens of armed groups are operating. There's very little state presence. And these territories have really been abandoned by the government as they focused on the M23. So if the M23 is defeated, there's still much more to be done to try to protect civilians in eastern Congo and, and the presence of armed groups. And how have the civilians uh, been affected by this infighting between uh, the government troops and M23 rebels? So we've documented two cases of civilians who were killed in Kiwanja on Sunday and several others who were wounded. And some of these, those killed and wounded were deliberately targeted by M23 fighters as they fled the town and they were shot by the M23 fighters' team. Others were wounded by shrapnel. Um, there was at least one other case of a man who was killed in Kibumba during the fighting there this weekend, also by a mortar that landed where he was. But in general, the population is just today up in Wuchuru and Kiwanja um, and drove from Goma through all of this territory that's just been liberated by the government. And overall, there's a feeling of joy and relief and the population has welcomed the army and they're glad that the M23 rebels are gone. People told us today that finally they won't have to be in their houses at 5 p.m. every evening worried that they might be attacked. Um, and it's just a great sense of relief amongst the population. That was Human Rights Watch researcher Ida Sawyer on the line from Goma in the DRC talking to Ntlantla Matlangu.
Two Kenyan soldiers have been sacked and jailed for looting a shopping mall during rescue operations after a deadly attack by Al-Shabaab militants last month. The sacking comes shortly after police summoned two journalists to write statements on a video footage showing soldiers carrying plastic bags of looted property. James Shimanyula reports from Nairobi. The sacking and jailing of two soldiers of the Kenya Defense Force was announced in Nairobi by military chief Julius Karangi. Speaking at a press briefing, Karangi said the two soldiers were found in illegal possession of mobile phones, cameras, and battery chargers. However, Karangi did not disclose jail terms imposed on the soldiers by a court-martial, but named them as Victor Tieno and Victor Shundo. The soldier being investigated is Isaya Wanjala. The jailing of the two soldiers follows the summoning of the two journalists working for Kenya Television Network by police to record statements after they showed a video footage portraying soldiers of the Kenya Defense Force carrying plastic papers from Westgate Shopping Mall, which was attacked by terrorists on the 21st of September. The video footage showed the soldiers allegedly looting property, but the authorities maintain that the soldiers had gone to collect water to quench thirst while police wait for the two journalists to write statements the federation of african journalists has expressed deep concern over what it described as intimidation of the journalists by kenyan authorities while the federation made its stand known kenya's inspector general of police david kimayo spoke about the extent to which kenya journalists can go as far as their work is concerned the constitution of Kenya gives very clearly the limitation that freedom of expression, freedom of media, that there is a limit that you need not to provocate propaganda war. You need not to incite Kenyans. You need not to distribute or maybe issue statements that can amount to hate speech. Kenya's Information Minister Fred Matiangi says police have every right to order the journalists responsible for showing the video footage to write statements. We cannot hold or tie the hands of the police when they want to carry out whatever actions they feel are necessary in terms of safeguarding our security. While Matiangi puts pressure on police to arrest the journalists, he insists that the government is committed to press freedom. We're very committed to press freedom. The media needs to go about their work with all the confidence they need and with all the commitment they need. As the journalists wait to record statements, the Kenya Media Council is deeply concerned about police action to summon the journalists, as its chairman, Joseph Odindo, explains. Using police and criminal law to address grievances over media coverage is an abuse of state power. Consider it a deplorable assault on freedom of expression and the people's right to know. Disputes relating to media coverage and the conduct of journalists should be referred to the Complaints Commission of the Media Council of Kenya and not to police investigators. The East Africa Law Society Chairman Jim Simwamu wants the Inspector General of Police to first launch complaint with the Media Council of Kenya if aggrieved before arresting the journalists. If the Inspector General has uh, reasons to believe that this 
reporting was badly done, that they did not give accurate report. First action that it will take is to report the matter to the media council. The media council will then investigate based on the information that it has. Then after doing that, if it is uh, proved that really that there was um, misreporting, then an action will be taken. But to ask them to report to show where they got information from is not helping issues because the issue is whether that information is correct. But what the inspector general should have done is to produce another CCTV and say what you produced is not correct. This is the correct version. Mwamu says without an official report on the Westgate attack, the media has the right to investigate and inform Kenyans. When are they going to tell us that, look, now we are opening up the place so that you see what actually happened? Many, many questions that Kenyans are asking are not being answered. That is why you find that uh, you will rather believe what comes from the media than what comes from the police. So it is important that uh, that place be opened as fast as possible. And then these forensic experts will tell us how long is it going to take them to go through this rubble. That was James Mamo, chairman of East Africa Law Society, reporting for Channel Africa this this is James Shimanyula. Channel Africa and Topcom Media brings you the 10th anniversary of the Top Women Awards. As part of Women's Month celebrations, these awards recognize organizations that empower women in business and government across the African continent. Channel Africa as a broadcast partner is sponsoring the African SMME Award to the Best Performing Enterprise. The award ceremony is taking place on the 2nd of August 2013 at the Sentinel Convention Center in Johannesburg, South Africa. Stay tuned as we will be speaking to some of the successful women entrants. For more information, visit the Channel Africa website on www.channelafrica.org. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa Radio. It's 8.21 Central African time and I am Lulu Gabu. Cameroon's National Assembly has resumed yesterday after th- September 30th elections. From barely 20 female lawmakers in the last legislative period, a new era has begun for women who now have about 70 parliamentarians in the 180-seat parliament. Moki Kinzega has more from Yaoundé. Cameroon's parliament resumes after elections that were held on the 30th of September with an unprecedented number of female lawmakers, that is, close to 70, in the 180-seat assembly. Observers say it is thanks to the advocacy of international bodies like Women in Politics that forced the country to sign some international convention to involve women in decision-making circles. Janet Kem led campaigns in favor of women from the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa. We will not talk uh, so much about resistance because we see a number of African countries, almost all, have ratified SIDO. I think almost just two or one are still remaining. We have most of them now abiding by the AU protocol on women's rights. They are abiding by a number of international conventions. So at that policy level, African governments are doing well. But the truth is, how much do they translate 
these legal conventions and treaties into realities, palpable gains for women and girls in their communities. That is where the gap is. And that is where the real issue is. The resistance is at that level, that community level, where we are still embedded in our cultures, in our customs, in our traditional way of doing things, in the beliefs that a man is this and a woman is that. And most often these differential definitions of values and norms discriminate against women. So there is resistance, yes, at the level of the communities. That is why we are working more with community leaders. Awareness raising is a key factor to addressing this issue, to change mentality, to change attitudes, to address these stereotypical uh, gender norms. It is not one instance of sensitization. It is a continuous effort. When business started at Cameroon's National Assembly, with women being very vocal, I asked some of the lawmakers just how far they intend to go. I'm Honorable Muyali Miri Mebuka. I'm a MP from Ziang. First of all, I have to thank God for the opportunity also. I think that is going to be wonderful. It's going to be exciting. And uh, with the experience that I already have, I think we will do more for our people and for the nation. Honorable Edna Enimba, Member of Parliament from Bengui, Momo East constituency. It's actually the beginning, as we all know. I'm just getting used to the environment, and all about the environment is still new. I can't tell you much about but certainly in the next few days ahead, I'll be able to tell you something about the environment. So far, it's good. It's quite a big experience. I've been district chairperson, but this time parliamentarian, a new experience. It's a big challenge, especially when I remember the population that crowded around me during the campaigns, how much they're expecting of me. I just keep asking God for wisdom so that I can go back and deliver exactly what they wanted and even more. By the grace of God. I'm Honorable Mibe Caroline from uh, Bui Center. I think I'm ready for the challenge because if I've moved right to this step, I've gone through a wonderful challenge to be here. I'm ready for it and I'm going to fight it. Many Cameroonians, Channel Africa accosted, still have divided views on women's participation at decision-making arenas. What I think they have to do this time around is not only coming to toe the line. They think they will make their voices heard. For instance, forcing the private bills will see that they are doing something. This time around, it has been tough for them at the campaign fields trying to convince the electorate. People are watching. Five years is not 10 years, not 15 years. It will come so soon. The MP has to lobby, lobby for projects. You must work in order to make their electorate feel that you are there. I will not really see any change from them. They represent the Cameroonian people. They don't represent a single party. Tell them, well, whether they like it or not, you're already in there. There's no way they will dismiss you from parliament. But that notwithstanding, I still hope that now that they are in there, they should realize that they are there to serve the Cameroonian people. The challenges ahead are enormous. Some African traditions still consider women as objects for men. For Buzem Martin, the traditional ruler of Chumba, a tribe in northwest Cameroon, for example, argues that women have particular roles to play, but elsewhere, not as active politicians and lawmakers. She is the advisor of the fund, very close advisor on female issues. In other words, most female issues that are likely to hamper the well-being of the village are brought to her by the other women and then she discusses this with the firm and then they come out with a strategy as to how to solve such problems. She's also there to organize the family, feeding, entertaining visitors, organizing the firm's many wives and his many children. So she's actually a wonderful collaborator of the firm. 
Cameroon's Minister of Women's Empowerment and the Family, Marie-Therese Abena-Ondua, has wished them well, but sounded cautious when Channel Africa met her. I would like the woman in politics to remain a mother, to remain gentle. We are not looking for the number, we are looking for quality. The woman should know how to read and write, be capable, be able to communicate in English or French or both at best. But she should be capable of discussing, not just say yes when somebody says something. She should be capable of understanding what is going on. Many people are waiting to see what the women can really effect as change after 52 years of Cameroon's independence and in a parliament always dominated by men. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. For the 22nd time, delegates at the United Nations General Assembly voted to end the United States embargo against Cuba. On Tuesday, the Assembly debated a resolution which called for the necessity to end the economic, commercial and financial embargo on the Caribbean island country. 188 member states voted in favor of the resolution, with only the U.S. and Israel voting against it. Micronesia, Paulo, and the Marshall Islands abstained. Jocelyn Sambira reports. After more than half a century, Cuba says the economic damages accumulated from the blockade amount to one trillion one hundred twenty-six billion dollars, citing fines imposed on U.S. and foreign entities for their relations with the country. On Tuesday. Delegates at the U.N. General Assembly met for the 22nd consecutive time to try to garner enough votes to lift the 1960 embargo against Cuba by the United States. In 2012, after a near-unanimous vote to end the economic and trade embargo, representatives of member states urged U.S. President Barack Obama to act on the right side of history and describe the blockade as crushing, archaic, and punitive. This year, Ethiopia's Deputy Permanent Representative, Ambassador Aman Hassan, spoke on behalf of the Africa Group. Africa reaffirms its full support for the draft resolution before us on the necessity of the ending of embargo against Cuba. We do so, first of all, because it is right. We do so also because Cuba has a proud history in Africa because of its role in the struggle of Africa for liberation. That role will continue to be remembered by the people of Africa, and the people of Cuba should continue to be proud of this historic contribution. The 1996 Helm-Burton Act extended the blockade's reach to countries trading with Cuba. The extraterritorial effects have affected the sovereignty of other states and the legitimate interests of entities or persons under their jurisdiction. Mr. Mohamed Adib, India's Honorable Member of Parliament and member of the Indian delegation, called for these laws to be repealed or invalidated. Despite the repeated calls of the General Assembly, its resolution remains unimplemented in contravention of the world opinion. Such disregard of the collective will of the international community expressed through the United Nations undermines the credibility of this institution. India strongly supports the categorical rejection by the international community on domestic laws and extraterritorial impact. The United States has made some efforts to ease sanctions, such as the Trade Sanctions Reform and Export Enhancement Act of 2000, as well as the reduction of travel restrictions and remittances in 2011. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. And Musa standing by with the headlines.
Good morning. The judges presiding over the trial of nearly three dozen members of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood have stepped down. A cholera outbreak in Nigeria has killed at least 75 people. And more than three million people globally are infected and living with TB but are not aware of it. Those are the stories making headlines. listening to Africa Rise and Shine at 8.31 Central African Time and you're tuned to Channel Africa Radio. A UN-mandated Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK, will hold its latest round of public hearings in Washington, D.C. this Thursday and Friday. They follow previous hearings held in London, Seoul and Tokyo, where North Koreans who have left their homeland detailed the heart-wrenching violations they suffered in the country's detention centers or even as far back as the Korean War in the early 1950s. Commission members were in New York yesterday to brief the third committee of the UN General Assembly, which deals with social, humanitarian and cultural issues. Deanne Penn caught up with Michael Kirby, a retired judge from Australia, who is the commission's chairman. We decided on public hearings at the very outset because of the fact that we were denied access to North Korea. It's not unusual for commissions of inquiry and some of the country-specific special rapporteurs to be denied such access. But then we puzzled and we scratched our heads and tried to think, what can we do to secure convincing testimony and to put it before the world community in a more effective way? And now, speaking of the witnesses, how did they hear about the inquiry so that they can participate in it? It was put on the World Wide Web. It was advertised in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights website. And it got around by word of mouth amongst the community groups. We reached out to the uh, non-governmental organizations as well as the nation states that have most interest in this area. And uh, there was no problem getting witnesses. I mean, uh, the duty of the Secretariat of the Commission of Inquiry was addressed to choosing amongst them those who would be most typical of the mandate heads so that we would get uh, the best possible, most reliable and the most powerful testimony available to us. There were some witnesses who, because they have family in North Korea, were not very happy about giving public testimony in public uh, hearings, but were willing to give uh, confidential testimony. And people of that group we saw privately and under conditions of confidence. Mr. Kirby, you've been a judge for more than 30 years, and you yourself said that you know you were quite distressed by some of the testimony that you've heard. Yes, I must say that I thought my heart had been hardened by all the years in which I sat in cases and I saw the whole range of human wrongdoing, uh, murder, violence, cruelty, fraud, uh, families turning on each other and so on. But I was surprised that uh, I did 
react and did cry at some of the testimony, uh, the testimony of parents who just wanted to know where their daughter was. She was at school, she was due to come home after a basketball practice and she never turned up and hasn't been seen since that day and she was only 16. They didn't hate North Korea, they just want to know if their daughter's alive and they hope that she's happy, that's all. And the testimony of a woman whose husband was seized during the Korean War 60 years ago, and she says that to lose a husband, lose a partner, is like losing an arm. And you think of your own life and your own relationships and the suffering that has gone on for 60 years, and no proper response uh, is itself a sort of cruelty and unkindness. Human rights are basically founded on love, human love, because we know enough about each other to know that it hurts when human rights are abused. So I'm not ashamed of feeling upset. I'm just a bit surprised that after 34 years as a judge it still happens, but this is a particularly sad set of instances. What will be the next steps? Your report to the Human Rights Council won't appear until March of next year, I believe. Until then, what will the Commission be doing? We will be considering all the testimony. Of course, this week we have to go to Washington, D.C. and engage in further public hearings and dialogue with Congressional Committee and with uh, experts and scholars and other groups, non-governmental organizations in Washington. But once that's over, we'll be analyzing all this testimony and then we'll be in the conclusion and report writing phase. And that will be probably in January 2014 so that it can be ready for presentation in March. And we are one mandate holder in the United Nations. It's not looking for an extension of time. We want to complete our job on time to the United Nations and then it will be over to the member states to decide what they can do in order to address the matters which we will set out in our report, hopefully with clarity, so that it is not a report that just goes into the dungeon here in New York and gathers dust here or in Geneva, but is something which will be acted on by the world community. That was Michael Kirby, Chair of the UN Human Rights Council Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights Violations in North Korea, talking to Diane Penn. South Africa's University of Johannesburg is hosting its fourth annual Soweto Conference on Entrepreneurship and Small Business Development in the township of Soweto, southwest of Johannesburg. Delegates at the conference include small, medium and micro-enterprises owners and other entrepreneurs from the townships as well as academics, students, government officials, government agencies and representatives from the private sector. The conference themed Turning Tangible and intangible assets and resources in townships into business opportunities aims to address the critical need to develop entrepreneurs and small businesses in South Africa. For more on this, Selina Dobong spoke to Moiboni Mulotsi, Director of the Centre for Small Business Development at the University of Johannesburg. The reason why we have conferences like this 
is to have an engagement between government, between um, academic institutions, researchers, experts in the small business space to inspire SMEs that are in, in, in business, to understand some of the challenges that they are facing, to give them information about opportunities and programs that they, they can um, access. And also we use it as a networking platform between SMEs. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, when they come to sessions like this, they are able to access business opportunities because of the people that they network with, you know, um, in these sessions. But, you know, this year the theme that we have for the program is how do we, you know, take or turn tangible and intangible assets in the townships into business opportunities. The reason why we came up with a theme like this is because we have seen that a lot of people in business, especially in the townships, they still need to innovate, you know, come up with new innovations on how to service the market in the townships. I mean, if this big business can look, relook at their own strategies and start coming up with ways to target township businesses so much more, you know, um, people in the townships ought to be looking at something like that. And you find that everybody's selling tomatoes, everybody's selling mangoes, but there's a lot that when people are sitting with that they can unearth and start using. So, like copycat businesses and all that without innovation, because in this era, in the global economy, you cannot compete if you are not innovative enough. Ms. Muluti, it's a wildly known fact that a high percentage of small businesses do not survive a year or two after their establishment. And this is mainly because there is a lack of, of business management skills and, of course, other challenges that include probably mentorship, particularly with regards to the people that this year's conference is aimed at. Is there a practical focus on these types of challenges and what's been done then or what will be done going forward to address these challenges? Well, I mean, if you look at um, the gap in regards to management and businesses and businesses folding within uh, three years or so because of lack of management, I think there's a bigger issue. You know, here because if you look at the sector, there are so many agencies, so many institutions, even universities are involved in management development, business management development. So, from where I'm sitting, I think we need to take stock of how effective are these programs that are being run on the ground. Are they addressing the, the real issue, for instance? Because there's so much business management going on, but maybe the problem could be that people are not innovative enough to compete in the global space. Something that we, as a you know, as a center, we also want to focus on next year. You look at innovation and support people to be innovative in what they are doing, and then we can talk manage thereof. The the conference is featuring other entrepreneurs that have gone through the different developmental stages yeah. in business mm-hmm. and and who have succeeded in business. Now, how do we measure success from these conferences? Okay, um, the conference is part of uh, the value chain of programs that we are offering as a center. So we have, uh, for instance, networking sessions. We have conversations to talk about business and where we invite top entrepreneurs in the country or even internationally to, you know, to come and inspire. And we also put them through training programs and mentorship. So it's almost the same people who have gone through the different programs that we offer as a center. But also, we are not only looking at the conference as a talk show. The discussions is to look at, you know, for people to take stock, look at their own environment. What is it that I have? 
that can, uh, can turn into business opportunities. So we allow them to actually take stock of that. And after the conference, we are going to be implementing some of the programs that people will be coming up with. That was Moiboni Mulotzi, Director of the Centre for Small Business Management at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa, talking to Selina Dubong. International telecommunications company Samsung is bringing together about 14 fashion and accessory designers from across the African continent in a unique design collaboration called Amaze Africa. The initiative forms part of the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week Africa, which starts today in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. Designers from Cote d'Ivoire, Angola and Kenya, among others, are required to create 28 exclusive looks in line with Samsung. Samsung's initiative. Each designer has been given a brief themed roots in nature. The inspiration is drawn from the different gems found in the Ditsong Museum in Pretoria. Doreen Mashika, a shoes and bag designer from Tanzania, is one of the participants of this initiative. It's certainly very interesting for me. I must confess it wouldn't be the first time for me to be in at a situation where I had to uh, work in a way that I need to merge fashion with the digital world. Doing it at a very high level with other designers is definitely very exciting. We understand that you create bags, shoes, which are inspired by East Africa. Exactly how long have you been um, doing that and how is it going? I started in 2006. I started it in uh, Tanzania mainland. I moved the brand to the island of Zanzibar, which is in Tanzania still. That was in 2008. And ever since, a lot of things have been happening. Say, for example, of recent, I just finished a collaboration with a U.S. company called Aiden. And Aiden actually belongs to the Louis Vuitton uh, portfolio. Next year, you're going to see another collaboration with um, Anthropology. The response has been very positive. There are some shops in South Africa who really love uh, my work. There are some shops where I'm stocked in Europe. So things are just, I would say, taking off if not flying. And in terms of affordability, um, just how affordable and accessible are they? Because a lot of times um, you find that people are unable to get hold of the stuff that designers make because they say they're not very um, affordable. That's the biggest challenge, I mean, affordability and accessibility. Right now, um, from next year, I'll be accessible online so people can buy online. But thanks to my um, U.S. collaborations, also from February, you'll be able to buy during Mashika online. Shipping will be worldwide. Accessibility due to being very expensive that's true. Africa is very expensive. Um, we don't produce in bulk. We produce unique products. So it, beca- it becomes a very big challenge to be able to serve everyone. But I hope that with the volumes of um, the pieces that I'm making right now, prices will be much more affordable. And um, I think uh, my works will be accessible to a lot of people rather than before when I started when my volumes were very low. Now with Amaze Africa, you've been asked to consider um, the future of Africa's unique journey and you've been giving a brief with roots in nature. Tell us about that. It was quite a challenge, honestly, because I work a lot um, with the Maasai people and I go a lot to the bush. After a couple of days, I started to, you know, gather my inspiration and I got some ideas. Um, I must say that, you know, as usual, um, one always needs a lot of time. So I would have loved to have a lot of time from um, Amaze Africa. But I also realized that sometimes working under pressure is when you perform best. So um, I came up with the four um, 
covers, and they have been inspired by nature as they had uh, requested. You may perhaps uh, come across at some point or see on the pictures that one, I have used what you would call a bullop or recycled sisal, and it's also combined with silk, which is Namibian silk, which comes from insects. I have used recycled materials such as brass. You come across horn. So I literally went back to what was available in Zanzibar, what we can use best, and what I think is actually environmentally friendly. What does being part of the Amaze Africa initiative mean to you? And exactly what will it also mean to uh, your business? You have to see here, I mean, Amaze Africa is a very, uh, it's a great project, first of all. Uh, Samsung is a very strong brand, as you can note. It's actually the strongest brand in Africa. That is very powerful because, you know, um, it will definitely uh, push my brand as well. It will gain a lot of trust because it takes time to gain trust. So it's being involved in such projects where your consumers start to believe, like, you know, if Samsung thinks it's good enough to produce a unique piece for them, you must be good. You can deliver. You can design. So this is a great privilege, and I definitely would have been the last one to say no to this. That was Doreen Mashika, a shoes and bag designer from Tanzania and one of the participants of the Amaze Africa initiative talking to Komuto Mopulani. Tabi Solohoku standing by with our economics news. DRC President Joseph Kabila has told South African companies that his country is open for business and investment. The $80 billion Grand Engadam project will have the capacity to power almost half of the continent with huge investment opportunities for South African companies. Kabila explains. It's nice to see that the business community has met here in Kinshasa, but it's on the occasion when the president is on an official or a state visit. I'd very much encourage you to meet much more often and not only to wait for the state visit uh, from the president or the president to Kinshasa or myself in Pretoria or anywhere else. So I believe that the only way we can consolidate and solidify what we are trying to build today for tomorrow and beyond. Meanwhile, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says he is confident that local companies who invest in the DRC will be successful. The project is also said to create over 15,000 job opportunities. Zuma explains. President Kabila and I are confident that the caliber of business delegates present here will participate in the improvement of the DRC's economic landscape. I applaud South African companies that have already invested in the DRC. Libya's oil crisis has deepened after protesters blocking Western Fields shunned talks between the government and locals. Locals have denied that an est an eastern terminal would reopen, frustrating government efforts to end three months of disruptions. Libya's oil exports have dropped to less than 10% of capacity, or 90,000 barrels per day, as renewed protests this week halted operations at western ports and fields, supporting global oil oil prices. Heads of state and business and development experts from across the world are attending the Mining Investment Solutions Conference in Johannesburg. They are discussing regional integration and its role in boosting economic growth and 
human well-being on the continent. Addressing delegates at conference, Sim Global Mining Head Koki Koiman shared what he considers the biggest challenges facing the mining industry in Africa. Which means that we import more than we export, and mining is 68% of our export. So mining is very, very important. Secondly, you've got a very big unemployment base, and you've got very poorly educated labour, which is internationally very expensive. So if you look at what's been happening this year, then it's almost, you know, the unthinkable that you've got mining being important but being held to ransom by a very expensive labour force. Etisalat Nigeria, a unit of the Gulf's top telecom operator Etisalat, is looking to offload its transmitter towers in a deal that could raise about $400 million. Building and maintaining mobile towers in Africa is is typically more expensive than in other regions. This is due to high security costs and electricity shortages that often require towers to be powered by generators. While new roads may need to be built to reach rural areas, this has prompted operations to increasingly look to sell or lease out towers to specialist companies. The US dollar trades at 9.85 South African Rand, 8.32 Botswana Pulas, 538 Zambian Gwajas. It's also trading at 0.62 to the British pound, at 0.72 to the euro. Gold $1,343, platinum $1,454 an ounce. Brand crude on 07, 60 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabi. So we now cross over to Figle Lingwati for our sports news. Sports update this hour. Reigning African Footballer of the Year, Yaya Toure of Ivory Coast and Manchester City, has been named among the 23 footballers from which the 2013 FIFA World Player of the Year will be chosen on the 13th of January in 2014. The midfielder is the only African player to make the list. The winners will be announced in Zurich. Toure who has been instrumental for the English Premiership side, has made an official complaint to UEFA over alleged racist chanting aimed at him during their 2-1 Champions League victory over CSK Moscow in the Russian capital. The Côte d'Ivoire International says he's furious and has called on UEFA to take strong action. Confederation of Afghan Football CAF President Issa Hayatou has been decorated with the Olympic Order of Merit Award by the Algeria Olympic Committee in recognition of his contribution towards African football. He is presented with the honor at an awards gala in Algiers to climax the Golden Jubilee anniversary of the Algeria Olympic Committee. It is also in recognition of the successes chalked by African football during his tenure. Hayatou also paid a courtesy call on Algerian Prime Minister Abdel Malek Selal at his office in Algiers. During the meeting, the Algerian Prime Minister affirmed his government's support towards the development of football in the country and Africa as a whole. Also present at the meeting were Mohamed Tami, Algerian Minister of Youth and Sport, Mustafa Beraf, President of the Algeria Olympic Committee, and Mohamed Raurua, President of the Algerian Football Federation. 
And in rugby news, South African Rugby Union President Oregon Hoskins says South Africa needs to have six super rugby franchises involved in the competition when they need broadcasting deals starts in 2016 or his union will be forced to look at other avenues. Hoskins says the promotion relegation system that has seen the demise of the Southern Kings this year has been detrimental to South African rugby and has proposed an 18-team super rugby competition that will include six teams from South Africa and New Zealand, five from Australia and a franchise from Argentina. It's not even an issue for us. It's six or nothing. Um, If we don't have six teams... We might as well sh- shut doors, close doors. People didn't believe us when we said how serious it is until we had to, you know, uh, forsake one of our provinces from out of the Super Rugby competition. And, 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 and people didn't realize that that's how serious it was. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't easy for us. It's, it's not pleasant, you know. Um, but but it's, it's, it's serious. We have to have six franchises playing Super Rugby or playing at the highest level in South Africa, uh, for South Africa. So... We have to do everything it takes to ensure that uh, our teams play in whatever competition. If it's not in Sansa, then we have to look north. And so I'm hoping that we are accommodated within Sansa. We are told that we are going to be accommodated. The challenge now is how are we going to be accommodated as Six Nations? Finally, with netball news, South Africa's Invitational Netball team emphatically beat Zambia 69-47 in the 2013 Diamond Challenge in Port Elizabeth. The home side led the tightly contested first quarter by 18-13. The second quarter was again evenly matched with the Invitational side adding 15 points to the visitors' 12 and take a 33-25 lead. The home team upped their game and took control of the third quarter with 18 points compared to the Zambians' 11 points. The last quarter saw South Africa outscoring the Chipolopolo side to wrap up a match by 69-47. The Proteas will meet Zimbabwe in today's final. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South African President Jacob Zuma warns rebel groups in Eastern DRC and two Kenyan soldiers arrested for stealing during Westgate Mall terror attack. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Charles Moyo and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Josh Groban featuring Lady Smith Black Mambazel with Weeping.
that the nightmare would never ever rise again. But the fear and the fire and the guns remain. It doesn't matter now. It's over anyhow. He tells the world that it's sleeping. But as the night came round, I heard it slowly sound. It was roaring. It was weeping. It was roaring. It was weeping. And then one day. Bottom.